So let us hear God's word, 1 Corinthians 15, and beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, And last of all, you have seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> well, as we gather here this morning and, and uh, come at an early hour, and for some of us, this is uh, maybe late in the day. For others of us, we're still trying to clear out the cobwebs. But uh, as we do this, and as we did uh, on Thursday evening, uh, these are uh, services that we have established Um, But we need to remember that these aren't required. But on the other hand, we say, well, this is consistent with what Israel did in the Old Covenant. They were given uh, annual things to do to remember various aspects of what God had done to save them. Obviously, the Passover and then the various feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, and um, the Feast of the Days of Atonement, and so forth. And so for these three times, especially through the year, they would pause and remember what God had done for them, obviously bringing them out of Egypt. Uh, At Pentecost, they came to celebrate the giving of the law, and the Day of Atonement, obviously, this is where they would celebrate God um, um, basically reconciling his people to himself. Uh, they had also celebrate the, the harvest during um, uh, these feasts as well. So as um, it is true that here now in the New Covenant, we, we're not commanded to come at 7.30 in the morning or on a Thursday evening, but it is consistent with what we see in the scriptures. And so it is to our blessing and to our benefit to force us to pause and remember because our tendency is, of course, to get very busy and forget about these things. And so uh, it is good that we gather even here on this morning to remember. Now, as we do, uh, I thought we would uh, return now to this account of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, of course, I've been working my way through this, and uh, I finished it here recently. But it was actually 2006 when we started it. Because, right, we've been doing every other year and so forth. And so because it has been so long, I thought it would be helpful for us to return to the beginning of this uh, rather all-important chapter on the topic of the resurrection. And so as we do so then, 
in uh, verse 12. This is really the issue for the whole chapter. It says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the issue that Paul is addressing. Now, we may wonder, why does Paul wait till chapter 15 to address this issue? Isn't this such an important issue? And the answer, of course, is yes, but maybe that's why he leaves it to the end. He leaves, as it were, the most important issue for the end of this letter. Because chapter 16 is, is more just kind of wrapping up uh, issues there and, and greetings and so on. And so with this issue then, in this chapter... He begins in verses 1 to 11 by recounting the history, the the event of the resurrection itself and the appearances of Christ. Then in verses 12 to 34, he addresses their inconsistent beliefs. And so it's more of a, a logic, a reason, if you will, that he gives. And then in verses 35 to the end, he talks about how the dead uh, will be raised and so forth. All right. Now, you may wonder... How is it, you know, you're only talking 20 to 25 years since the resurrection of Christ. So how is it that some people already were denying the resurrection, either the resurrection in general or even Christ's resurrection? How did that come about? Well, remember that in Israel, you had a group that denied that there would be a resurrection. Remember, the Sadducees taught those things. Remember, even Jesus spoke to them and rebuked them for that. But... Obviously, these people are in Corinth, they're in Greece, and so you have all the Greek philosophies that were uh, there, and of course, pretty much across the board, they said there can't be a resurrection. If somebody dies, they can't rise again, and so forth. Um, There's also some of the early Gnostic ideas that said the body is bad and that the spirit only is good, and, and so... Uh, that taught that, well, Jesus wasn't really a man. He didn't really die. He just looked like a man or something like that. And and others say that um, maybe Paul's addressing people who said that the resurrection was only a spiritual resurrection, not an actual one. Well, you know, whatever the case, whatever it was that led the people to believe and say these things, uh, Paul responds to it. Same way for us today. We have people that have all kinds of crazy ideas in regard to the afterlife, to the resurrection. What's it going to be like? Okay. You know, I enjoy watching sports, and, and regularly you see people crossing themselves or pointing to the heavens or something like that, and they're talking about God, and they're talking about this, that, and the other, about their loved ones that look down on us, and they can see us, and maybe we can talk to them. I mean, there's all kinds of things out there. But we also, on the other hand, have those who say, look, if you're dead and you're truly dead, there is no such thing as a resurrection. It can't happen. So on the one hand, you say there's no resurrection. On the other hand, people believe in some kind of afterlife, some kind of resurrection. And so it's, it's a really mixed bag. And so this chapter is very relevant for us because in many ways, what Paul is addressing in the first century, we're addressing uh, and encountering some of the same things. Uh, in our culture. Now, Paul, of course, uh, is addressing this all-important issue, and and all four of the Gospels speak of the resurrection of Christ. Paul speaks of the resurrection in various times and places, like we have just seen in in Romans 1, verse 4. 
He speaks about it at a little more length in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But obviously this chapter, he spends all these verses on this issue because of its uh, significance. Now remember, Paul was in Corinth on the second missionary journey. He spent about a year and a half there. So there was much that he taught them. But somewhere along the line after he left, these erroneous views came in. And uh, in one sense, you might, not say, uh, you might say it wasn't very surprising because of being in Greece. So <clears throat> with all this as somewhat of a background, let's look now at verses 1 and 2 where Paul now gives uh, kind of his introductory thought. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so Paul begins here and simply says, look, I've already taught you about this. I've already taught you about Christ's resurrection. In fact, you believed in it. When I was there, many of you said, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. And many are still standing in that truth, he is saying. It's not all the Corinthians that denied the resurrection, but as we see in uh, verse 12, some among you are saying, but many still are believing in the resurrection. In verse 2, he says, look, you've been saved by it. Obviously, because of Christ's resurrection, we are saved, and, and that's true for some of you. And look at the end of verse 11, so you believed. So there's definitely some who truly believed, and at the beginning, everybody said they believed. So, how is it that some of you are saying differently? Again, that's his main question. Now, some commentators would say, well, some of these people believed in Christ's resurrection, but didn't believe that anybody else would rise from the dead. That the only other resurrection that we experience is some kind of spiritual resurrection. Uh, others would say that some of the people in Corinth were even denying Christ's resurrection, again, because of this distinction between body and soul and so on. But either way... Paul is going to say simply in this letter, you can't have one without the other. You can't believe in Christ's resurrection without our own. And you can't believe in salvation without Christ's resurrection. And so overall, that's his point. And so again, uh, as we seek to apply these things for us today, um, it, it is certainly very relevant. <clears throat> All right, now notice how he ends verse 2 with this warning. Unless you believed in vain unless you believed in vain. If, as they said, they believed in the resurrection of Christ and, and even our own resurrection and salvation, if that's true, great, right? This is what is true. But if you have rejected this, if you do not really believe that Christ rose, and I mean actually rose from the dead, okay, then your faith is in vain. So as, as we think of that thought, just in the last 200 years in uh, Western society, there have been many people who have said they're Christians, but they do not believe in the resurrection. Okay? Maybe most notably, you think of people like Schleiermacher or even Kierkegaard and so forth, some of these big-name philosophers. But even today, you'll hear many people um, who say they're Christians that deny the resurrection. But that, Paul says, is a false faith. In fact, that word for vain is the word for idol. Okay? It's false. It's just an image. 
And so from the beginning, we don't have to wait till verse 13 for Paul to really get at it. Even right here in verses 1 and 2, he is saying, if you deny the resurrection, you might as well go home because there is nothing for you here. You are not a Christian. Okay. So as I talked about here recently in Romans, the resurrection is central. Central event of history and central in our understanding of what salvation is all about. All right, so as we continue then, let's look at verse 3. Where does Paul go next? If he's addressing all these issues, and again, if we're going to address the issue today with people, where should we begin? Well, verse 3, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Let's start with that part here. Uh, If you turn back to chapter 11 here, just a moment, um, at the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, he uses that language. He says about the traditions as I delivered them to you. And then if you look at verse 23 in chapter 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And then he goes on and talks about the Lord's Supper. So he's using that same language here again. And the point is simply this. I wasn't there. Hey, Paul, as he's going to say, was born out of due time. He wasn't there. He didn't participate with the other apostles in the life of Christ. And so I received these things, and I'm passing them along to you. He's also saying, look, I didn't make this up. Hey, I have received this truth, and I have taught it to you. Hey. And notice also then he uses... Uh, the, the word here, first of all, first in importance. The resurrection is not a side issue. It's central to our faith. And then Paul jumps right into what most likely is a creed or maybe a hymn that the early church sang. And so the end of verse 3 says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that takes us through verse 5. There are four parts to that. And you'll notice that the first one here in verse 3 and the second part of verse uh, 4 both say according to the scriptures. So those those obviously go together uh, in that way. Notice how each of these uh, clauses are short. And so Paul doesn't elaborate there. And again, these are just some clues that that, uh, lead us to think this was probably something the church recited. Like an Apostle's Creed or something to that effect, right? So the first line then says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now remember, Paul is seeking to prove the reality of the resurrection. So he begins here by saying, Christ died for our sins. He truly died. He didn't just pass out or something. He truly died. This is a true death, so therefore, there is a true resurrection. And it's not any death. It is Christ dying for our sins on behalf of us. And this, of course, is some of what we emphasized on uh, Thursday evening. And so, now that he has come, now that he has died for our sins, our sins are truly forgiven. We have been set free from our slavery to sin. And so now... Heaven is accessible. And the last part of this sentence says, this is according to the scriptures. And so there are all kinds of passages in the Old Testament that spoke about this happening. We might think of a few here briefly. 
Uh, remember in Genesis 22, when uh, God commanded Abraham to bring Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, and, and God then stopped him and provided a substitute. And a thousand years later, on that same mountain, the temple was built. And then a thousand years after that, Christ died at that same place on Golgotha, on the mountain there in Jerusalem. Um, we could also turn to passages like Isaiah 53. Right? All we like sheep have gone astray, right? but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's died for our sins. Certainly we could look at all the sacrificial system, beginning with God himself, right? In Genesis 3, God was the first one to kill an animal, to shed blood, to cover somebody's sin. Then we see it with Abel, and of course we see it with Noah, and then Abraham, and the sacrificial system, and so forth. All of these things were saying, right, this is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to die for our sins. Now let's turn a moment to Luke chapter 24. And uh, actually I'm going to refer to this passage several times this morning, uh, not only now, but later at uh, the later service. So uh, just stick something here and we'll turn back to it a few different times this morning. And so here in uh, Luke 24, note um, in verse 25, Jesus is speaking to the men on the way to Emmaus and so forth, and, and uh, they've uh, sat down to have their dinner and so forth. And he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then in verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, likely Jesus spoke of other things, but certainly that would have included that he came to die for our sins. And so this is the first thing. And again, the point is, Jesus truly died. And so therefore, he truly was raised. So then uh, the next part then is verse 4. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And so the first part of this, uh, this verse then, uh, and the second overall here, is that he was buried. So, point's pretty straightforward here, right? He truly died, and he was put in the tomb. And note, his body was put in the tomb. He wasn't some phantom or ghost. He, his body was actually put there. And, and so those who talk about a spiritual resurrection have to deal with a body in the tomb. And so he was wrapped up, remember the spices, all those things that they would do. And so then the third part here is that he was raised, or he rose again, the New King James says. Literally it says he has been raised. This is something that's happened, again, from Paul's perspective here, 20, 25 years before, he has been raised, but, but he's still alive. It's not like Lazarus, who was raised and then went back and died again. Even Jesus is still alive. And so notice then a true death, a true burial, and now a true resurrection of his body. Now, notice then it says also here on the third day, and in Hebrew culture, they believe that a person's body started to decay on the third day. Now, in a drier climate, that makes sense around here. It may happen more quickly, or especially in a hotter climate uh, that is damp and so forth. 
But the point here is that he was raised before any of that happened. And so once again, this is not a spiritual idea only. This is a physical aspect to it. Now here too, he says, according to the scriptures. Now the difference is the death of the Messiah. There's stuff all over the Old Testament. But in terms of the resurrection, there aren't that many places that specifically say that he would rise from the dead. So let's turn here a moment to Acts chapter 2. You recall these words of Peter. And let's pick up, if you look at the end of verse 23 in Acts 2, it says, Peter's saying about how they put him to death. And then verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. For you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now this is from Psalm 16. And then Peter says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Right? So they could actually go find his, his bones. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And so here is one of those places in the Old Testament that says that Jesus would rise from the dead. Now, we could also turn to Isaiah 53 that also has uh, some teaching in regard to the resurrection. And, of course, Jesus himself said he would rise from the dead. All right. Now, as we come back to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, we see then um, the next part. The next part of the creed, verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. All right, now you might say Paul's getting to his main idea. Jesus was seen. He actually died. He actually was buried. He actually rose from the dead, and people saw him. And not just one or two. Here he says, first of all, by Cephas, and then he says, by the twelve. And so he wasn't just raised. He didn't just go back to heaven. He showed himself. He was seen by eyewitnesses. And so there were people there that truly saw his death. I remember they stabbed him in the side and water and blood came out showing he truly had died. And and then people actually saw him raised bodily and, and not just some spiritual resurrection. And so this line is very likely still part of the creed. And so we start with Peter. Peter saw Jesus. Let's come back to uh, Luke 24 again. And uh, if we jump down a few verses from uh, what we looked at before, in verse 34, now um, these two men come back to Jerusalem after realizing it was Jesus and so forth. And in verse 34, they come to the disciples 
And then they are told, right, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And so remember, Cephas is another name for Peter. Simon is another name for Peter. And so we're talking about uh, the same person here. And then if you look uh, at verse 36, uh, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. And so Jesus appeared to Peter and then he appeared to the 12. Now, of course, when it says the 12, we know that's not literally true because Judas is dead. 12 is just a category referring to the apostles. And remember, even Thomas wasn't there the first time. And so it's referring to the apostles here just generally. All right, now back here in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Most likely, verse 6 is Paul's additional words. He adds to verse 5. Because again, as, you, as, as I read it here in just a second, you can hear the difference. It's not so concise, you might say. So verse 6 says, After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. That doesn't sound like part of the creed, right? But it's the same idea. And so Jesus not only appeared to Peter, not only appeared to the apostles, but he appeared to 500 people at the same time. Okay. Um, likely this included some of the women and maybe even some children, but it happened all at once. And so Jesus appears to one person, he appears to a small group of people, and now he's appearing to this large group. Yeah, it's pretty hard to have a hallucination when you have multiple people and lots of people. Now, lots of people can be deceived. That's happening all the time. Just turn on the television news, and you'll be deceived if you pay attention to what they're saying. Okay? But in terms of a hallucination, it's pretty hard to convince 500 people of, of uh, something and deceive them and so forth. So this is helping us uh, to, to uh, believe in all this. Now, when did this happen? We just read from Matthew 28 a little bit ago. And some people suggest that that's when it happened, when he was up in Galilee. Um, maybe it was at his ascension in the Mountain of Olives. We don't know for sure. Uh, but there were 500 uh, here. Now, notice what Paul then says. Hey, <clears throat> look, if you don't believe me, go ask them. Right? Most of them are still alive. Again, we're talking 20 to 25 years after the event, and most of them are still living. So go ask them. They're here. Right? Now they're going to have to travel to Jerusalem or whatever, but still they could find out if they really wanted to. All right, now verse 7, then he continues. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Now this is not James the brother of John. This is James the brother of Jesus. This is one of his brothers. This is the James that wrote the book of James. This is the James that uh, was leading the Jerusalem church. Now, you recall in John chapter 7, we are told that the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him, not when he was living. But they did come to faith after he rose from the dead. Because Jude, right, we've got the book of Jude, he also was one of the brothers of Jesus. So we have two of the brothers that, right, we've got their works here in the New Testament. And so they came to faith at some point. I'm inclined to think, in light of what Paul says here, that it happened after the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he specifically went to at least one of his brothers and said, Look, 
hey, I am alive. I am who I said I was. You need to believe in me, this kind of thing. And, and James does. Okay. Now, the last part of this verse then says, by all the apostles. Now, how does that fit with the 12? Um, we don't know. Paul doesn't give us enough information. Possibly this means that what we saw in verse 5 was the first time when Thomas wasn't there, and then he appears to James in the intervening week, and then he appears to the apostles again with Thomas there, maybe uh, right the week later or something. Maybe that's what Paul is referring to. But whatever the case, Jesus appeared to all these people. And then, verse 8, And last of all, you have seen by me also as one born out of due time. Jesus appeared to Paul himself. And Paul is passing on things that were delivered to him. Jesus came to Paul specifically, too. And this was after Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus left his throne at the right hand of the Father and came specifically to visit Paul on the Damascus Road. And so Paul clearly saw the risen Christ. It wasn't some spirit Right? Paul's knocked off his horse and, and he's blind for a few days. He saw the risen Christ. And so Paul's basically saying, hey, don't tell me it didn't happen. Don't tell me this was some spiritual resurrection only. I saw him myself. So the point that Paul is making here is simply this. For those who deny the resurrection, you're going to have to deal with all these appearances. All these appearances of Christ to these different people actually prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay. Now I'll come back to that thought here in a moment. Let's finish what Paul says. First of all, the end of verse 8, he says, as one born out of due time. That's a nice way of saying it. The word literally means miscarriage or abortion. You might say that Paul is a freak. He was born post-maturely. He's a monstrosity. These are some of the terms the commentators use. It is quite possible it's a term even the Corinthians use of Paul. And he's like, yeah, I am a freak. Jesus appeared to me after the ascension. And then he continues, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so, once again, as Paul does regularly in his letters, he is proving his apostleship. Um, and he starts by saying, I am least. And it's possible, again, that Paul is quoting what some of the Corinthians were saying. The Corinthians are saying, well, Paul, you're the least of the apostles because hey, you're after the fact. And he's like, well, yeah, that's true. And you're not worthy to be apostle because you were persecuting the church. Said, yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. See, I use his grace three times here in this one verse. I am an apostle by God's grace. Yeah, I'm the least. Yeah, I'm a miscarriage. I'm a freak. Yes, all that's true. But by God's grace, I am what I am. 
I may be less impressive in some ways, and yet I've actually done more than the other apostles. He's not boasting. It's all of God's grace. We have 13 letters of Paul. We have most of Acts that's about Paul and so forth. And so, because God has shown grace to me, you need to believe me. I saw the risen Christ. So don't go around saying there is no resurrection. And then in verse 11, he concludes this thought, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So many of you have come to faith through my efforts and even the efforts of the other apostles. We teach the same thing and we all teach that Christ rose from the dead. And so to deny the resurrection is to deny Christ. To deny the resurrection is to deny the teaching of the apostles. All right, so back to his main point here then in this opening section. Do you see how Jesus appeared to individuals? To Peter, to James, and to Paul. Now there were others with Paul, but remember they didn't really know what was going on. And, of course, in the book of John, we see that he appeared specifically to Mary Magdalene. Jesus appeared also to small groups. We see the twelve. We see the apostles. Hey, we're going to see later in John 20, the disciples, however many that was. Maybe it was 20 or 30 or whatever. And then, of course, the large group, the 500. Again, it's pretty hard to explain a hallucination when it happens multiple times to multiple people in multiple places and even to the same people on more than one occasion. Okay? It, we're not told how many times Jesus appeared to Peter, but it certainly was at least a few different times. Okay? And so, I mean, this, this is proof, this is evidence of Christ's resurrection. And Paul doesn't even give us everything. We could talk about those men on the way to Emmaus. We could talk about the distinction with Thomas when he was there, not there the first time, but there the next time. We could talk about the seven at the lake there in John 21. We could talk about all the different women there uh, at the tomb and so forth in the different Gospels. Look, there is more historical evidence for the resurrection than almost any event in the ancient world. You know, you often hear, if you're, if you're talking to people about Christ, about Christianity, and so forth, and, and, and so on, um, press them on this point, because almost every one of them will believe that Nero set the fire in Rome, as I referenced here just last week in Titus. Okay? Pretty much everybody has heard about Mount Vesuvius, okay? and, and list off any number of, of ancient events. And pretty much everybody okay, would, would say, well, yeah, it happened, right? We've got this document and so forth. Yeah, it said it happened. But, you know, most of those events, we only have one or two or maybe a handful of references in the historical literature. And yet people will believe it. We believe what Plato said and Aristotle said and so forth. And, and for most of these things, we have very little evidence. And I'm not saying we shouldn't believe those things, but I'm saying if you're going to believe those things, then why wouldn't you believe in the resurrection? Look at all this evidence that Paul gives us here just in these few verses. And then you have the other passages here in the New Testament. There is so much evidence. There's so much good reason for us to believe in the resurrection. Okay? 
And so if somebody is challenging you on this point, or you're talking to them about Christ and the resurrection and they're not so sure, there's really no reason for us to doubt it. There is so much evidence here. To deny the resurrection is not only to deny the gospel, but to deny the resurrection is really to deny history. It's that supported. And so if people are going to deny the resurrection, it's not for lack of evidence. It's not for lack of reason and logic. It's because they don't want to believe it. That's really where it comes down to. Now, obviously, it still takes faith. But it's not a blind faith at all. Our faith is in an objective reality. And so this gives us comfort. Jesus has come. He has died for our sins. He has been buried. But he rose again on the third day and appeared to all these people. And though we have not seen him, hey, we too have received his spirit. And we know and we believe in these things because of his grace. And so we come here this morning to celebrate the resurrection, the real event of the resurrection of Christ. And because of this, we have salvation. And so by God's grace, we rejoice in these things. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you um, for your word. And um, in this case, for, um, you might say, a similar scenario in Corinth as we face today. Uh, We are thankful, Lord, for these words of Paul that you have given through him uh, to help us as we live in a culture that is so similar uh, to what Paul is dealing with here. And so, uh, Lord, may these words of Paul encourage us in our faith. May it challenge us to believe and to accept the reality of the resurrection. And may we also then, um, like Paul, use these these words and these thoughts as we engage with others and as we tell them about Christ in the resurrection. And so, Lord, we again thank you and praise you that you have fulfilled your word, that Christ has come, and that he has accomplished salvation for us, and it has been verified and proven through his resurrection. And we are thankful, Lord, then, that we have the promises of eternal life secured in him. And so we pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.